0: I encourage you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm twenty nine. By way of reminder, these you know are the canonized prayers of Scripture. This is the prayer book of the church. And so these psalms, these prayers have been given us to train our hearts to see Christ and to set our affections on the things above, even when the rains come and the flood rises. Psalm 29, it is a psalm of David in which David says this, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due his name and worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The voice of the Lord. He breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, in his palace, all cry glory. The Lord is enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace in seventeen seventy five in the city of Lisbon, it was November first it was a Saturday morning, but it was a feast day, and so so many Christians were in church in their respective cathedrals, a predominantly Roman Catholic territory and Here on this particular Saturday morning at uh, shortly before ten a m as people were in places of worship a earthquake struck. One that set forth a massive tsunami leading to many massive fires. The death toll in the city of Lisbon alone was estimated to be as many as 50,000 deaths. It's one of the deadliest earthquakes in history. Leveled the city of Lisbon to the ground, and created something of an existential crisis for the citizens of Europe there in the 1750s. Where was God in all of this? We don't have to look uh, too far in the past for situations like this. One perhaps might think of 9-11 or even the 2004 tsunami in the Pacific Ocean that claimed the lives of nearly 230,000 people from over 14 different countries. Over and over again, we are confronted with what we might call natural disasters and calamities that strike us, not only at a personal level, but also at a corporate level. One would speak often of the storms of life and what an apt description that is for the various catastrophes and disasters <coughs> excuse me, that befall us and seem to shake our faith. How many people in light of such disaster be it at the national level or even a personal level when a death in the family occurs or some disease or some tragedy. People begin to ask whether or not God is even present. Is the existence of evil proof of God's non-existence? For others... It's not that God is absent, it's rather that He is impotent. Is God really able to save people from calamity? And yet for others, we hear a cacophony of voices that claim that if this God is real, He is not a benevolent deity, but a malevolent force who is indifferent to the needs of the human race. Well, against such doubts and fears, against such accusations, Psalm 29 stands as a lighthouse in the midst of the storm. As the psalmist here considers the greatest natural catastrophe in human history up to this very point, as he considers the great deluge that flooded the whole earth of, as Second Peter calls it, the world that then was. And as he contemplates the reality of the flood, the greatest catastrophe, as it were, naturally speaking, in the course of human events, he considers the implications of God's power over creation, even at the flood, and the ramifications of what that means for us today. There's three things I'd like us to consider this evening. First, I would like us to consider the Lord's strength You'll see that here in verses 1 and 2. Secondly, I'd like us to consider the Lord's voice in verses 3 to 9. And then finally, the Lord's reign, R-E-I-G-N, not R-A-I-N, in verses 10 and 11. So the Lord's strength, His voice, we might say His rule. Well, here, the psalm begins by addressing a particular group of people. Depending upon which translation you have, you might have a different audience in mind. Quite literally, David says, Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of Elohim. question is, what does he mean by that? Who is it that this psalm is addressing to ascribe glory and strength to the Lord? If you were to read the King James, translation goes, O ye mighty ones. The New American Standard, O ye sons of the mighty. The ESV, O heavenly beings. And that, I think, lays out before us the various options that we see in good and faithful translations. But we see this particular phrase might perhaps cause us to scratch our heads. I don't think we should pass over it, but rather begin to reflect on who it is that is being called to sing praises to God in this particular psalm. One of our options is this, that when it speaks of the sons of Elohim, the sons of God, it is addressing the elect from every nation. Think of what Hosea 1 says the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea. You think of that promise that harkens back to Abraham, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it is said of them, you are not my people, it will be said of them, you are sons of the living God. You are the sons of El, one of the names of God. Here in Hosea 1, it uses this same phrase to speak of the promise of salvation that extends to the Gentiles. So is David asking or is he calling for the nations, of the, uh, the redeemed from among the nations to ascribe strength and power to God? If one reads Calvin or Andrew Bonar, Bonar is Bonar's one of my favorite commentators on the Psalms. Both of them see here echoes of Psalm 2. In the psalm with the command to kiss the Messiah, to bow the knee to Him who has been enthroned on high. And so some commentators will say that this is a call to the pagan nations to ascribe glory and strength and power and majesty to the Lord who reigns on high. And yet, we have a third option as well. An option that calls for, and this is how the ESV takes it, the angelic powers to ascribe glory and strength to the Lord who reigns. You think of Psalm 89. It says this, Who in the skies is like the Lord? Who among the sons of Elohim is like the Lord? Notice that parallel here. The sons of Elohim are put in parallel in poetic form with those who dwell in the sky. Those who consist of the council of the holy ones. You think of Job chapters 1 and 2, which speaks how on a regular basis, the sons of El would enter the heavenly throne room to pay homage among those being that fallen angel, Satan. Those are really our three options set before us. And the question is, which one is being addressed in this particular psalm? Well, I think on the one hand, we might say that it doesn't matter. Scripture really does call upon all three groups to give homage to the Lord. For instance, in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul, writing to the church of Ephesus, reminds the believers that Christ has been exalted to the heavenly throne and has been seated above every rule and authority and power, be it the pagan nations of this earth or the demonic hordes. The fact of the matter is, both are true. Christ is supreme over all, be it things visible or things invisible, as Colossians 1 reminds us. Similarly, we are reminded that both saints and angels are called the sons of God. Perhaps this is a joint call to worship. Of course, we also want to recognize the context is key. The setting here of Psalm 29 is, comes from the vantage point of the heavenly throne room. There is a call for those sons of El to ascribe God glory and strength, and here the perspective is, comes from the voice of heaven, uh, from the perspective of heaven where God's glorious voice goes forth with power over creation With the result, verse 9, that the inhabitants of this heavenly temple acclaim the glory of God. Makes me think that perhaps the ESV gets it right, but I don't think we need to push it too far. I think this is a psalm that we might say in light of its ambiguity gives a certain clarity and relevance, relevance for so many situations. And so we don't want to pigeonhole what Scripture says, but recognize that here is a loaded term that in a number of scenarios it is a call for the angelic powers to remind to be reminded where the real power lies now you think of people who have been enmeshed in the occult and magical practices thinking that they have the right solution the right key by naming the name of a particular deity or patron saint or fill in the blank. This is a reminder that there is one who stands supreme even over the forces of darkness. For those who are troubled by uh, the wickedness of pagan rulers and pagan nations, this psalm is a reminder that there is one who stands greater than the forces of darkness that occupy the halls of Washington, D.C., of London, of Rome, Moscow, fill in the blank. Here, God's sovereignty is unequivocal. There is no contender. There is no rival. God stands. Perhaps it might be better to say God sits on high. And He reigns over all. There is nothing that falls outside the scope of His sovereign power and so we see throughout scripture both the church and the angels being called to bow the knee to him who is holy 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 in fact when we make it to the heavenly throne room in revelation 4 and 5 it is both the saints and the angels both called sons of god both sons of el in their own respective ways bow the knee to him who has conquered over death and hell. And so we see here that in this psalm, being reminded that Psalm 29 is part, it constitutes part of the prayer book of the redeemed, this is a call for us as well. But we might say it's a call to worship not that not only we would worship, but it's a reminder that the worship that is due the triune God is he owes obedience from all, not just the redeemed. In one sense, Calvin and Bonar are correct. The pagan nations and rulers owe obedience to him. And in another sense, we would say that the other commentators are right and that the angelic powers must hold obedience to him as Paul writes about those things, as well as this being true for the church. Because we are reminded And I think this is important. Where the trajectory of this psalm is landing. There is a certain envelope uh, or a bookend that is characterized by strength for this psalm. Uh, Here in verse 1, it begins by speaking of the strength of Yahweh that He possesses alone as He holds supreme power. And yet it ends in verse 11. That the strength that he possesses is a power and strength that he dispenses to all who turn to him. And so there's particular application for the saints. It's a particular application for the church, as Hebrews 2 reminds us, that it is not the angels that Christ has come to help and give strength to, but it is to the sons of Abraham. To those who share in flesh and blood, and those who share in the faith of Abraham. This psalm is about the power that the Lord possesses and the strength that He imparts to those in the midst of the storm because He reigns sovereignly over all things. And so the call goes forth. From heaven to the saints, to the angels, to the pagan nations, ascribe glory and power to God. Hail Yahweh, in whom is found the fullness of glory and strength. He is to be worshiped for his power, which all creation attests to his power and deity, as Psalm 19 and Romans 1 remind us. And yet we find here that the manner in which God is to be worshiped is particular that he is to be worshipped in holy array. We cannot worship God apart from holy living. Not that our own personal holiness is the basis of our entrance to the heavenly throne, but that the very obedience and honor that is due the Lord must come not only from our lips but must flow from the heart that has been sanctified by the waters of grace. In other words, what we see here in these opening verses is that this call to worship also serves as a call to holiness. Even as Peter writes in his first epistle, citing the book of Leviticus and applying it to the new covenant community, community that you are to be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Well, just as the saints and angels are called to worship the Lord for his power, so here in verses 3 to 9, we are called to consider the manner in which God's power is manifested from heaven above onto the earth below. Seven times in rapid succession here in the middle section, the, the creamy nougat of this psalm, we are told of God's powerful speech. Seven times it is said that the voice of the Lord is powerful. It is found in the lightning, in the thunder, and in the shaking of the earth. Here, the psalmist directs our attention to a powerful thunderstorm in the natural world order. It reminds us that this is reflective of God's powerful Word. Here, the focus, of course, is on God's creative and governing speech the focus at this point is not yet on God's redeeming power, but rather on his sovereignty over all creation. In other words, this is not simply some privatized deity that will comfort us in the midst of sorrow and, and hold our hand and say, they're there, now, everything's going to be okay, and yet remains impotent to do anything about our present circumstances. No, the reality is here that the same God over creation is the same God who redeems and saves his people because he is the very one who has called all things into being. And here we find that he is no impotent deity, nor is he an absentee landlord. He speaks and the earth trembles. He speaks and he causes the deer to give birth. Now David turns his attention to the greatest natural catastrophe that has ever fallen this earth prior to the final judgment. You read 2nd Peter chapter 3 and Peter himself divides world history into two large epics. EPOCHS the world that then was and the world that now is, the world that then was comes to a catastrophic conclusion and end as the world is destroyed in a watery, watery deluge. As the heavens are open, the waters from above destroy everything in creation except for that family and those animals that are still located in the ark of safety. And Peter reminds us that there's coming a day when the world will be that now is will be destroyed and yet on that last day it'll not be destroyed by flood but by flame. Here David considers the great catastrophic we might say eschatological du- judgment that is found in the old world. The worldwide flood. You know there's a word in Hebrew that uh, you can use to speak of rains and floods. And yet, the word that is used here is the same word that is not found in the regular flood. You think of the, the, the floods that, uh, are, that have struck northern California these past few weeks. Here, this is something even greater. And it's that word, mabul. And it it's the same word used to describe the Noahic flood in Noah's day. When the floodgates of heaven fell in an act of sovereign judgment on the world that then was. Here we ask ourselves, where was God? Was he absent? Was he impotent? And no, David uh, presents to us a radical truth. That actually that judgment, that great catastrophe actually emanated from the Lord's own voice. He's holy and righteous in all he does. But here the focus is on his power. So interesting that so many early commentators, even in in, in the church, even up to the 17th, 18th century, would recognize and and see natural disasters in one aspect as a manifestation of God's hatred against sin and His judgment on the world. Here we see here that um, the the great deluge comes from God's sovereign power. It does not happen because God fell asleep you, know, you think of uh, Elijah with uh, the prophets of Baal in First Kings 18, when the prophets of Baal are crying out uh, to their God to save them, uh, to, to let the fire fall, and there's, there's no response. And, you know, what is Elijah's response? Eh, maybe it's Taco Tuesday. Maybe your gods are in the bathroom. Maybe you took a vacation. It's not the case here with the God of the Bible. When we are confronted with great catastrophe, we ask, "Where is God?" What we are told here over and over again is God remains high on the throne. He did not slip on a banana peel. He did not take a nap, and then the flood happened to transpire when uh, when he was off the clock. No, the Lord is sovereign over all things, even catastrophes. You know, when you're to read, if you're to read kind of the ancient Near Eastern creation myths. You think of the Enuma Elish or uh, part of the section of the Epic of Gilgamesh uh, or uh, uh, any other of these sources. You find this repeated theme as the ancient pagans would, would speak of the creation of the world and uh, how there is universal testimony to a global flood. And yet their understanding of the flood is so radically different. You, you think of, uh, uh, of Baal, one of the great rival uh, contenders for the hearts of God's people in the Old Testament. Baal the storm god, basically the the Ugaritic uh, and Canaanite version of Zeus. The rider on the storm. How is it that Baal comes to power in his own cosmology and myth? Well, it's because he is engaged in bloody warfare with rival deities. And as he defeats and slays these rival deities, he ascends to his heavenly throne, and heralding his enthronement was the sound of thunder and lightning. And yet, what a radical contrast we see here. As the Lord has no rival, as the call has gone out to the sons of El, be it the angelic powers, the the pagan nations, or the sons of God, there is no one greater than Yahweh. Yahweh. He has no rival. He has no contender. There is no one who is able to, uh, to try to stake a claim uh, over the throne of heaven uh, that, that won't be laughed at. What is it the Psalm 2 says? The Lord from heaven laughs at these things, at these men who exalt themselves and try to say that the power and the kingdom and authority belongs to us. Here, all heavenly beings owe their very existence. Even the angels in heaven owe their existence to the Lord God Almighty, who themselves are the product of His powerful voice. They are already subject to Him. You think of even the dreaded Leviathan of old, which is a picture of the great serpent. You think of Job chapter 38, for instance, when the Lord asked Job, who is able to draw Leviathan, the great serpent, from the deep? by his hooks, giving a window into the very purpose of suffering, what it is that the Lord is doing as he seeks to slay the serpent. And yet in Psalm 104, this dreaded Leviathan, as he is such a monstrous, beastly creature, this dragon is said to be the Lord's play toy. As David says, the Lord has created the seas so that the Leviathan might play in it. In other words, the description, as, as, as hideous a beast, as monstrous a beast, as these dark powers might be, as malevolent as those forces are, as hostile as they are to the purposes uh, and, and, and holiness of God, from the perspective of the Lord's reign and power, they're like fish in an aquarium. So great is the power of Yahweh. Satan says he thinks he's the big shot, the big fish in the sea, and the lord says well yeah I, I made I made the fish tank for you to swim in, so there's that. These dark forces are nothing compared to the power of God, and what comfort that gives to the people of God. Here we see the scope of the lord's voice here there, there's these geographic places you might not be familiar with. I say you, I should say we." I've not been to the Middle East, but we see Syrian and Kadesh. These are regions in Lebanon, and if you look at a Bible map, you recognize these are boundaries. These are places that fall outside the boundaries of the land of Israel. Why is that significant? Again, in the ancient Near East, for the various gods of the Canaanites, the power of that deity was circumscribed by the boundaries of the people who worshipped that deity. Thus, the Canaanites might think Baal to be powerful over the land of Canaan or Phoenicia, but he is not powerful over the whole earth. There's a rival deity in the next county over, as it were. And yet, here we see the voice of the Lord speaks, and what happens? The wilderness of Lebanon, a pagan territory, shakes. What is it that the psalmist is saying here? what the psalmist is saying is that the Lord's power knows no bounds. Yahweh is not some tribal deity. Here he sits enthroned not simply over a sliver of land in Palestine. Here he is enthroned in heaven above all things, things both visible and invisible. There is no place where the Lord's voice is not heard and where the word of his power is rendered impotent. Here is a picture of absolute sovereignty. And it is God's sovereign power that is on David's mind. Leading us to the last section here of the psalm here in verses 10 and 11. Again, there is this acclamation of praise. That even over the flood, that flood that was demonstrated in the days of Noah, the Lord reigns in power. But what does that mean for us? Is, is David a, a, accusing the Lord of being malevolent? No, the Lord is robed in, in holiness. He is to be worshipped in holy array. We see that in the old opening verses. And elsewhere in, we're, in Scripture, reminding that the flood was an act of God's sovereign and righteous judgment against evil. It's not that God is evil. It's that God hates evil, and He has the sovereign ability and power to render judgment against wickedness. And yet, here we find ourselves in the midst of so many disasters, both national or Private that strike us, and we are hit with those same lingering doubts and questions. Is God present? Is He impotent? Is He malevolent? And to all three of these questions, of course, we answer in the negative. Christ is there. We have a God who is here and who is not silent. We have a God who is not only willing but able, is not an impotent God. And here we have a God who is holy and good, who there is no shadow of turning with him as we sung this evening. And so where does that leave us? What comfort does that give the people of God? And here we see in these closing verses the point of the psalm. Here is a psalm that is bookended by strength. In verse 1, here is, we are told of the one who possesses omnipotent power and strength. Again, there is no category of ruler that is more powerful than him. There is no angelic power. There is no angelic being. There is no uh, politician or king or emperor in power. There is no one who is mightier than the Lord our God. And the one who possesses all power, the one who remains unmoved even as the waters of judgment fall, here is the one who dispenses strength for his people What greater judgment befell the earth than its destruction by the heavenly rains that fell and destroyed everyone on the face of the earth? And yet, the same God who caused the rains to fall is the same God who made a way of salvation for Noah and his family. 120 years prior to the commencement of the flood, the Lord tells Noah, the preacher and herald of righteousness, to construct an ark an ark that carries the same dimensions if you look and compare is the temple in first kings chapter 8 god is sovereign over creation but god is also sovereign in salvation because he possesses all power he is the source of strength who for all who will turn to him Whosoever will may come. The Lord is the one who stands as our ark and our refuge in the midst of the storm. And so, when personal calamity strikes or national tragedy, of which we might ask, are any of these less devastating in its scope than the flood of old? Well, when those things strike, we find that we are given two great promises that even in the midst of tragedy, God continues to reign. And in the midst of those calamities, the Lord promises to remain and continue to be the salvation of His people. Here, God's strength is exhibited in a unique way. It is exhibited not by the bearing of an arm. God is spirit. He does not possess. He's not composed of body parts or passions like we are. His power is exhibited in another way, by the, by the bare word, the word of his power. Here the word speaks and it creates. Here the word speaks and it governs. Here the word speaks and rebukes. Here the word speaks and saves. And here the word speaks and calms the storm. The Lord upholds all things in creation and providence. Will he not strengthen the saints whom he has redeemed for salvation? The Lord is sovereign over the greatest natural catastrophe to befall this present world, then the Lord remains sovereign over all lesser catastrophes, no matter how disastrous they are. Here we are reminded of God's power, and so we are reminded that we ought not to treat God lightly. The author of Hebrews says this, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, speaking of Moses, much less will we escape him who warns from heaven, speaking of Christ. At that time, his voice shook the earth. Using that same language here in Psalm 29. Haggai 2, but now the Lord has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Just as the waters of judgment fell the human human race in the days of Noah, so judgment is coming again on that last day where the world and the heavens will be consumed not by flood, but by flame and fire. Therefore, the Lord is to be revered, for He is a consuming fire, as Hebrews 12 tells us. It's a great warning to remind us that we are not worshiping an impotent deity, but that we should worship him with reverence and with awe, as Hebrews reminds us. But here, attending this, also comes that strong consolation that him who is all-powerful will grant power to save his people. Just as the disciples themselves learned on that day as they were crossing the lake. As they were in the boat in the middle of the night, a fierce gale of wind arose and the waves began to break over the boat so much so that the boat was filling up. The disciples, as they are anxious and freaking out and fretting, where is Jesus? He is asleep. They turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, Jesus, what are you doing? We're, we're about to drown. Surely we're going to die. Please help. And Jesus gets up and rebukes the wind and says what? Hush. And the storm ceases. And the disciples say, who is this who has power over the storm? Mark 4 reminds us of the deity of Christ because he is the one who reigns sovereign over the flood. How seriously do we consider God's judgments? Do we try to impute ill character to him because he rules in justice? Do we treat God lightly as merely a heavenly Pez dispenser to give us candy and toys? Do we treat him with the reverence and awe that he deserves? Do we recognize him for the power that he possesses and for the graciousness that he has as he promises to be that source of power to all who turn to him? Matthew Henry in writing on this psalm says this, while those tremble who are without shelter, Let those who abide in his appointed refuge bless him for their security, looking forward to the day of judgment without dismay, safe as Noah in the ark. Let us pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. Uh, And we pray that we would stand in awe of your majesty and sovereignty that we would fear your name and yet know that the one who is to be feared above all gods is the same one who beckons us to call him father and to seek his face that we might be delivered from the coming wrath. Strengthen our faith we pray that we might set our hope securely on Christ who has come to deliver us from the wrath to come. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.